Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. A guest appears today who's been a long time coming, Rob Reagan, Principal Architect and Researcher at Bishop Fox. We've been trying to put this together for a long time. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are you? Thanks for uh, having me. And uh, yeah, sorry for uh, always rescheduling on you. <laughs> That's all right. What is a Principal Architect and Researcher and what do you do at Bishop Fox? kind of do whatever I'm needed to do. Uh, it's a individual contributor. I don't have anyone that, that reports to me. Um, I get to learn how to influence without authority and I get to um, try to create value in um, whatever intersection there is of problems that interest me and that I feel like I can contribute to along with what the business needs. Are you focused heavily more on, on product side of things? Or are you still heavily focused on the services side of things? Is it more of like a kind of visionary role of... These days, I uh, am really enjoying my role. I get to be a Triforce between product. So there's um, product managers that are... Uh, navigating the, the, the waters of what needs to be uh, built. I also get to help with uh, capabilities development, which is our R&D group. And uh, they're building the coolest cutting edge new techniques uh, for, for testing and um, inventing what I think is really the state of the art and get to, to jump in the waters with them. And then I also um, spend a lot of time with customers and I, I get to do uh, solution uh, building um, like from a solution architecture perspective of customer has this interesting challenge or this complex set of needs, how should we approach this? Let's brainstorm some options. Or more recently, it's even been, um, you know, they want to do something new or something that's never been done before, like testing LLM integrations. And uh, they, they ask me to come help figure it out. Uh, you've been in the trenches of pen testing, security assessment for the bulk of your career, dating back to, uh, I don't want to age you too much, but the old um, uh, Spy Dynamics days? Yeah, I, I got my, um, I, I've been in IT for, for 20 years and uh, was a professional software developer. And, and then um, security was a hobby for even longer than that. It was, um, you know, going to 2600 meetups and uh finding like-minded folks uh, in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And then um, it was later that I found a professional career path and realized I could get paid. Uh, and and even, even at first, I, I was a, a software engineer. Right. Um, uh, I worked on static analysis tools and on dynamic analysis tools at uh, Spy Dynamics, which they um, got acquired by HP. It was also there that I got my first taste of penetration testing. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. And penetration testing is is like the perfect entry point to security industry because you you get in to get a, a an off an offensive an offense take and take a look at code or look at a, a, a products from an offensive eye. Uh, is that something you recommend a lot for uh, folks trying to get into the industry is to getting through the offensive door versus going through the sock thing? Is it something you think helped you? There's no right or wrong way, I guess. Get in any way you can, but um, I do think that it helped me a lot to have done everything else first. I mean, I started in help desk, uh, answering support tickets. I did network administration, system administration. I did, um, I started debugging code, uh, that was doing like flat file processing for HIPAA requirements and, uh, for a healthcare company. And then I started making web apps and building web apps. And, uh, my first job, um, even at the offensive, security company, product company in Spy Dynamics was 
to make vulnerable web apps, to test our static analysis tool, to make sure that it found the vaults that it was supposed to find. And so I had to literally study and learn all the wrong ways to build a web app in every single way in, in .NET that you could uh, create a SQL injection vulnerability. And that was also very valuable for like how that translated to my penetration testing skills later. And the pen test and the security assessment industry kind of got commoditized over the years. It's been heavily, uh, it's been heavily a people business. The people, the, mm-hmm. the companies or the, the crews who could score the best talent at look searching and finding uh, uh, became, you know, were, were better known for, for their work. So it's, it's a people business that, that generally doesn't scale. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like over the years leading up to when we start to see it being productized or, 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 or shop starting added, adding products to it, we had kind of stretched to the limit of where pen testing was from a people perspective. Is that a fair assessment? And can you talk a little bit about how the emergence of bug bounty programs and that entire ecosystem uh, uh, shaped where we are today with the pen test industry? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Let, uh, let's let's go back. I guess um, the founders of Bishop Fox they um, showed me this book that came from the inner inside of like Ernst and Young, which is where they they uh, cut their teeth in consulting. And it was how to run a pen test was basically this book. And it and at that that point it was already you know decade plus old. Now it's several decades old. Is this the how to and sell it, professional services? Uh... This was specifically created um, by their team that was delivering penetration uh, tests at NY. And so it was like, it was how to scope a pen test and how to like, you got to ask them how many IP addresses they have. And you got to like estimate uh, how much time it's going to take based on that. And you got to, and it was basically how to plan out and how to scope and how to then deliver in the methodology uh, for like a network pen test. Right. You know that that evolved, uh, uh, but I don't think it, it, it evolved enough. Um, and I still think there's a lot of innovation to be done in in the space. I, I do think that I noticed this uh, early on. I um, noticed that whenever a team or a company gets maybe like over a hundred people, um, it's really really hard to maintain quality. Uh, it's really hard to um, recruit and retain like the same caliber of talent and, and, and make sure that everyone cares about what really goes into a quality experience for customers. Uh, not just, a, not just a quality test. Like it doesn't matter what your hacking skills are. It means, do you care about the customer experience and their drivers and their outcomes and their success criteria? And are you going to, you're going to make mistakes along the way, but what are you going to do to make it right? And, um, I think that's how you build a, a high quality brand is it's uh, how you recover from your mistakes and your not so great experiences with your customers. Um, that sets the tone. And in order to scale that, um, it, it, it gets tricky. And I think that's why some of these other things showed up in the marketplace of like a bug bounty or a crowdsourced way of like, I, don't, I, I can't wait six or eight weeks for the top talent to be available. I need to get something done now, or I have a thousand apps I need to test. I can't pay uh, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars per app. I just don't have that much in my budget. And I think that's why um, the market created what it needed. But that's a weird way of looking at it, that you're saying a pen test shop cannot grow beyond a hundred and maintain quality. 
is like what why 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 do you think that's a tipping point is it just just scaling i, I don't understand why why do you feel that's the tipping point it was just what i observed at multiple places um as i was an outsider looking in on some of them and i also was an is it a structural thing is it a structural or management thing is it something that can be fixed i mean because companies have to grow i mean people are investing Definitely. big monies into companies venture capitalists are investing into these companies the idea is to scale it and grow it and become a thousand person company if you can't maintain Definitely. any sort if your quality eventually drifts as you grow then you're having problems right what how is that even fixable I think it is fixable, and I, I do think it is. Uh, and maybe it's not true for it. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm. This is just an opinion, right? right? right. Um, maybe maybe there are some shops out there that are um, figured that out. And uh, but I, I definitely know that they would tell you they had some trials and tribulations along the way. And I think that um, actually running in in cells or like groups that actually almost act like a smaller company. Like so, I used to lead our Atlanta um, pen test team, and I felt like I was running my own company. Uh, even though I had the parent company, you know, right. funding the, the, the whole thing. And then they were definitely the safety net. But I, for the most part, I was kind of had a lot of autonomy to run my team and run my small office the way I wanted. And um, that was great. It, it, it definitely had a lot of uh, pros and cons, but it, it helped. Um, I think it helped us kind of form our own culture of like what it means to do high quality work. And that was, um, I think a big part of the recipe as you, maybe then you just have a, a bunch of 10 or 12 person teams that feel like they have a lot of autonomy and have like the, the principles and the values of, of what it means to deliver quality, um, pen testing, but they have to navigate that water and I'm sure they'll have their ups and downs along the way. It's really the bug bounty programs and the emergence of the crowdsourced model has really been fascinating to me. Do you feel from your perch, it's been a net neg a net positive to the industry, bug bounty programs and the availability of you know additional eyeballs uh, has been a net positive for the industry from a defender's perspective? And how do you, how, how do you view the, uh, it affecting like, the job market where it kind of, it creates employment for, in, for folks in places where, Perhaps, you know, those jobs would not have been available. How do you view the whole emergence of bug bounties? I think absolutely it's been a net positive. I, some of my really good friends, um, you know, came uh, into the industry and, and made a name for themselves, made, made a lot of money for themselves as well um, uh, by focusing on uh, disclosing vulns to companies and, and collecting a bounty along the way. And I absolutely think that it's been uh, a net positive for businesses that navigate the consumption of that type of an approach really well and have go into it with the expectations of the kind of resources they're going to need to fix these things in a timely manner. And they're going to probably get way more reports than they're used to getting. And, and um, I've been involved with uh, our customers that need help triaging and need help making sense of all the reports and need help weeding, weeding through some of the noise and need, need help turning it into a quality written finding so that their engineering team can ultimately fix it in a timely manner and um, know what fixing it entails. And um, I think that there are wildly different experience levels in, in, in who writes a report um, and, and the quality of that report through, through those types of platforms. But I also think that there's people that are um, 
doing really innovative research and really innovative ways of finding bugs. And they're, it's a great way to get exposed uh, to them if a company you know, doesn't want to hire them like for some hourly right. rate or fixed fee type project, but wants to be able to have a clean and easy way to receive information from them that is valuable and important so that they can fix a vulnerability that they wouldn't have known about otherwise, right. and except maybe. And the public image of bug bounties as individual hackers around just kind of poking at code is very, very different from the reality where these guys have professionalized it and it's all been automated down to finding and reporting because you have to get in first and you have to make sure you're first to report to get paid. Can you talk a little bit about how yeah. much that driving that the competition in that space to be first and to report the high risk findings first has driven innovation oh, yeah. in ways in in ways that's been fascinating to watch. Totally, um, and I've I've participated in in bug as well. Like in particular, like um, uh, myself and some other folks uh, teamed up to to get. Um, uh, there's an airline that pays with with miles, and and we we uh, between the a lot of us had like millions of miles, like 17 and a half million miles. And I think I contributed like three and a half of those million miles just because they would pay you a million if you got a critical issue. Um, and we were actually working in a team. And I think we were, um, we did this because we, we played on each other's strengths. We, you know, we were able to get more impact out of issues if we shared what we, we knew um, about the issue. Now this requires a lot of trust because I know that um, whoever submits first uh, gets gets paid first and the others might be marked as a duplicate. Um, so I think that um, there's this competitiveness between a lot of folks out there that they may not want to share information, but then they also form a close knit group of friends. I think that they do trust and that they collaborate with and work together to have even more impact. And, and I think that's doing things in a team is always better than, than doing things alone, especially if you have a good team. And um, I think that it also incentivized people to create automation, to create things that were continuously um, working on finding issues while they were sleeping right, or eating. Right. Or- yeah, I had Shubs on the podcast talking a lot about some of the automation that, that was came out of his whole own bug mounting while he would go to sleep to be scanning and searching that eventually became the baseline for the product that he built a company around, right? love shoves and love um, his passion and, and, and truly is a pioneer of continuous security. By continuous, we just mean higher frequency. And that frequency might be you know, hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, but um, it might also be yearly in some cases. I mean, uh, you're continuously having birthdays every year uh, <laughs> and help you keep, keep doing that. The idea that um, we weren't able to this is a big thing that I think was uh, broken and a problem with the traditional professional services approach to pen testing. People would only allocate budget to do it once a year. And um, once a year is not good enough, especially for the amount of change and and tech that happens and the amount of change in any given company or any given app. Uh, Once a year does not cut it to have some experts try to break in. Um, I think that there's a lot of people that... um, invested in the type of infrastructure to be able to discover changes um, to an external network attack surface. And that then spawned off its own whole industry. There's open source projects that got funding and and went on to go get acquired all in a span of like 18 or 24 months. There's also been a, a dark side and I'm trying to take, I'm trying to like help the audience understand how, you know, someone like you view 
the, the contributions of the bug bounty world to the cybersecurity ecosystem as a whole. And a part of that is bug bounties have kind of introduced a lot of NDAs and put a lot of blockers in place for disclosure that would otherwise shift the MB power to a researcher having the ability to, you know, hold a vendor accountable. I feel like that a bit of accountability has kind of gone away as well. And in, on top of that, we just touched a little bit on some of the dupe. The, the, you know, you have to be raised for first and so on. And uh, there's, you know, there's an argument that the industry feels abusive to researchers as well. Has that affected things at a macro level at all? Or those are just small minor hiccups that we'll just have to continue dealing with? Yeah, I'm not a lawyer and I'm also uh, not... Um, I, I think there's, there's, there's probably, like you said, a darker side of, of some things that have not gone so well. But there's probably also some some benefits uh, I, i'll try to be optimistic and and there's probably things that got disclosed and got fixed that two decades ago would have never even seen the light of day or or if someone would have tried to do the same thing and 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 reported it they would have had the, the uh, fbi called on them uh, so I do, I do think that um, there's also things that we've seen not go so well that that have been swept under the blanket of a bug bounty that, you know, probably were were just breaches and, and probably were just incidents that you probably shouldn't lie to, to the government about. Um, yeah, I, I guess I say that to say I think we're still learning and still adapting, and and as long as we keep innovating. On, on the approach, then that's the only way we're going to get You better. mentioned continuous, and continuous is kind of the basis for this attack surface management category that's emerged to uh, describe uh, productization of pen testing and the ability to do attack surface management and attack surface discovery. That's one of the baseline foundational things. You can't protect what you don't know, so let me help you tell you what you have. Even if, I, even if you just know what you have and where it's sitting around, that's value, right? That's valuable information. Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we there yet? Is attack surface management solving our problems? I think it's definitely improved. I think one of the other big problems that needed to be solved with traditional point-in-time testing uh, was, and this goes all the way back to that, that uh, playbook uh, from, from decades ago uh, of how to, how to scope a pen test. Did you you had to ask the customer, what are your IP ranges? And with modern infrastructure, modern um, tech stacks, cloud, it's impossible and it's dynamic and it changes every hour sometimes for some companies. And they just, they just don't know. And so I think one of the most important things that the tax service management industry set out to address was, I'll tell you what your tax service is and I'll keep it up to date for you continuously because you don't stand a chance of filling out a scoping survey that asks you what your IP addresses are and getting it remotely accurate. Um, and the attackers are going to use uh, the same OSINT techniques that uh, tax surface management products use to do a better job of, of mapping out um, how they're going to get an initial access vector and break in. Uh, so we need to adopt those same techniques as we plan our, our testing. How does, that, how, does that, how does that address attack surface when identity is the attack? Is the, when identities become the valuable yeah. asset? Can you talk a little bit about how you view this, this future one, of attack surface yeah, management? It's only one, one part of the, of, the, of the overall picture. And I always refer back to like the, like the Verizon data breach reports and, and they would map out all the categories of how people would get breached. And it's basically four or five that, ways, right? Yeah. It's like seven. I think if it, at least how I categorize it in my own mind, it was like, uh, and, and the things that attack service management can focus on are um, 
missing patches. So there's, you know, you have like uh, a new CVE and, and you got to get a patch and, and we can, you might not do that in a timely fashion. And some opportunistic attacker might scan the internet and find that and, and, and add you to their botnet. It might be a misconfiguration. It might be just, you know, some cloud misconfig that's like a leaky bucket of data that is um, exposing stuff. And that someone is scanning looking for that as well. Just, just so, the, sure. so, the, so the audience understands, like every time you do talk about this, uh, expose something, there is an adversary actively, continuously scanning, looking for those as well. And that I've might be a bot, like or, uh, someone that's running a bot that is literally assigned to do that one thing to every um, IPv4 address on the entire internet. And or everything in AWS. Yeah. So then a sensitive info leak might be another type of in- issue. Um, it might be like a, a, an app fault as well. It might be like a server side request forgery, or um, it might be something that is even on the unauthenticated app attack surface, a way to exploit with a, 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 a like an OWASP top 10 level app fault that, that leads to, to the initial breach. And then, um, Lastly, it was a default, a weak password, default passwords, easily guessable passwords, passwords that came from another breach. Um, and that might be a way that someone gets a foothold. Then the two that, that I don't think attack surface management um, products uh, do even attempt to address or typically, but uh, that also lead to breaches are phishing and malware. And that's where I think like a red teaming type of efforts are much better at uh, helping organizations practice against uh, def- to practice defending against those types of things. When you and I read reports of scattered spider and the calm and these so-called teenage hackers who are causing major damage, wreaking havoc across using like SIM swapping and basic social engineering techniques, does that surprise you at all? It's the most effective tool in the toolbox. It's, um, and I also think like the, the bribing employees, um, messaging them on LinkedIn and saying like, Hey, I'll give you uh, 500 bucks. If you, um, how do you defend that me though? Your... I mean, how do you defend that when that is the actual, that those are the actual live attacks we're, we're, we're facing. Honestly, if I, if, if you were my customer and you were legitimately asking me that question, I would suggest that we plan to write down a playbook tailored to your organization that specifically addresses those exact attacks. If it's something that we're definitely worried because it maybe has already happened to us and we don't want it to happen again, or uh, it's happened to our peers, or we think on a long enough timeline, it's going to happen. So let's write down a playbook um, that helps us prepare to be defended, to defend against it. And let's work on what um, policies, processes, and technical controls we can put in place to mitigate the risk. And I prefer to focus on the technical controls. And what does that look like? A lot of MFA, put MFA wherever you can. Like, can you talk a little bit about what, like, be, especially for this, this, this SIM swapping, uh, social engineering, getting into the help desk, or, or, you know, grabbing credentials from one breach and bouncing across to another breach. Can you talk a little bit about some of the controls that should be top of mind sure. for security programs today? It might be um, following principles of least privilege in, uh, from a from a policy perspective, and looking at like, um, do all of your executives really need access to all of your production data? Uh, probably not. Do do your engineers need access to things that should be private that are customer data? Probably not. Um, do is there a way to them for them to still do their job using like differential privacy techniques, or using synthetic data, or using things that? Um, they can still do whatever they need to do, uh, but they don't like, we basically reduce the attack surface is, is still, I think one of the best uh, pieces of advice that anyone can adopt if they're in charge of securing an organization. You take away 
all the users that have access to our most sensitive data. And, and we only have a couple of accounts and a couple of ways. And they're, it's not just MFA everywhere. It's, it's going to be like, you have these, you can create these choke points and you can create um, ways to detect that something abnormal is happening and, and or preferably prevent that that thing happens. And, but you have to tailor that to your exact organization. There's no generic product you can buy that's going to accomplish this for you. There's no generic um, incident response plan that's going to accomplish for you. You need to know, you need to, um, I'd probably recommend you start with tabletop exercises so that you can practice who on your team is going to do what in, in this situation and, and um, what did we put in place to help save us from this event and then eventually practice live fire exercises of playing it out with a red team actually executing those attack those, those attacks um, as much as possible there's certain things that are illegal that are tricky to, to do in practice but um, you can simulate most aspects of these types of attacks and then you can practice just like you're sparring if, if you do like martial arts uh, like you you practice for the fight that you're going to be in so that it's muscle memory and you actually can um, recover well uh, in the face of a, of a real attack. I, I always ask this of guys who do uh, pen test, red team, or any sort of offensive work. When you go into an organization from day one, do you know exactly where you're going to start and exactly where weak points are just from looking at the scoping document? Or does it take a long Sometimes. time to like, well, what's the typical engagement look like? And I'm trying to get to the point of like, where are, where are the common weak spots that you're always running into and you know, okay, let me just start there because totally. I'm going to get in right there. Totally. Um, I definitely had kickoff calls where a customer showed me like a demo of an app and, and said, we don't think you're going to get in. And I was like, I already saw three or four <laughs> issues. Um, but I've also, uh, uh, of course, there are playbooks that, that the attackers run that are pretty safe bets uh, on, on getting getting um, success from an attacker's point of view. But we do like to start out, um, especially in a red team, building uh, an architecture diagram, um, if one doesn't already exist, or, or maybe we make a tailor-made one that is putting all the different components of all the different systems and the players and the people and the um, things that we want to focus our attention on. And then we'll often build an attack graph where we're actually outlining the scenarios of these are uh, the starting states of threat actors and the end goals of those same threat actors. And this is the um, paths that we can take to get there. Uh, and these are the controls we expect to face or, or, or we did face. And we can often work with our customers to get a sense of priority of they're like, oh, you know what, of the like five or six scenarios that we just brainstormed, let's prioritize these three because I think we'll get the most value from these three, but let's save those other ones for later. I just, I just don't think that that's a good use of our time right now. And so, um, but then at that point we were trying to uh, surprise the blue team or we're often trying to have them experience something that they haven't before to see how well they handle it. And of course, there's just tried and true pivoting techniques and 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 tool, tools and tricks of the trade that that work. We even maintain like a list of um, passwords from breaches that we have in a, um, a big table way to query really quickly and say like, give me every password that anyone that ever had an email address at this domain ever had lost in a breach in the plain text password of it, and then we'll use that to like password spray some endpoints and and often like someone reused their password and it works to get us an initial initial foothold or at least you know know that we now have a valid set of credentials maybe it triggered some mfa or something like that 
but um yeah there's there's uh things that that work almost everything. and on the flip side what makes a good blue team when you're caught by blue what what are they using constantly to catch you what makes a good blue team without going into like any particular products or things like that uh things it's just that they have a really good plan and i feel like that they are um trained often sometimes we we run into teams that bought every product under the sun they put millions of dollars of investment into their sock and, um, and set up trip have every tool. A lot of tool. I mean, I mean, yeah, every tool that's on the, the, the vendor floor at every Which was my next question. Okay. Okay. What's going on? And let me, you can, maybe you can bake it into your answer here, right? It, security is very expensive. Good security is not cheap. But can good security be purchased? Can a company with this unlimited resources and access to everything, if I give a CISO unlimited resources, go buy everything and put every control in place and make it work, is that even... Is that even attainable? It's not. That's not going to just magically achieve good security because because what I what we end up seeing happens is they they spent millions on on every product in their sock, but they don't know how to use it or they're not using it properly or they don't use it to its full capability. They have things set to log and uh, that uh, an alert that they should have had set to prevent because there's no legit reason that should ever happen on their network. Um, they had things kind of fail safely it's a lot of times and and often even like we've done so many social engineering engagements over the years i i do think that there's a lot of opportunity for technical controls to mitigate the risk of social engineering being successful but i've never seen a company like i have this like list of like 12 controls of things that i think could really make it a pain in the ass to spearfish someone um i've never seen one company have all of those in place i've only ever seen one of those work in catching us um and slowing us down uh but I've never seen one company have all of those like as a well-oiled machine in tune working together. And I think that if folks, and also like there's not one set of things that is going to work at every company because different companies have different tolerance. Like, especially like I was uh, try to talk a lot of our customers out of buying physical pen tests from us. Cause it was like, you don't have the culture to have like full body turnstiles at, or like um, uh, man trap entry points to your office. <laughs> like it, now maybe you do at your data center, but like you don't have the culture to have like m- the security that it takes to prevent tailgating or to have things in place that would actually mitigate the risk of a, a physical breach. Um, but we can often, you know, find things that are opportunities for improvement, but uh, not every company has the culture that, that wants to have all these controls in place because security inevitably always sacrifices users. Sticking on products here. Is there, or, and I know you guys take a vendor neutral and a product neutral approach to your recommendations and stuff, but are, are there like point products that you actually see and like? Uh, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned blue teams with, with good products in place to catch you. What, what, maybe not necessarily products, but what are some categories you like? I am a big fan of... Um, what would you buy? You're a defender. What would you be focused on buying as a priority? I don't think I should. I don't think I'm uh, very good at defense. Uh, uh, I, like I may have a lot of opinions on it, but I, I don't actually know that I have uh, enough experience to, to have um, say that I know what to do. But if I had to, I'm a big fan of deception technology. I'm a big fan of like things canary and like what Harun is doing over there. Yeah, th- things like that. I think um, they really are effective. And, and I think anytime there's been a, a trap laid, like oh, here's a piece, of, here's some credentials or an AWS key laying around in this text file. Of course, I want to go try and use it as an attack. Of course, I want to like see what it has access to. And if that's a honey token, like boom, you just 
detected someone on your network. I think those things, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to innovate on that. If, if I were trying to defend something, I would probably set up a bunch of traps to try to catch an attacker uh, doing something that it shouldn't right. be. As do. an industry, we've kind of settled on this EDR world of assume breach, store and log all the things, and we'll do detection and response later on, and we'll kind of mitigate risk that way. Is that, is that uh, something that's sustainable? No, I, I think that we have to be more proactive. I think that there's, you know, the industry is obsessed with indicators of compromise. But if I had uh, the ability to make like a like a wish and, and have it come true, I wish that the industry would shift to focusing more on indicators of vulnerability. Um, because, what does that mean? So an indicator of compromise is something already happened, and then you already it looks like we've been breached on this host, and the EDR detected that. You know, there's this malware now and, and there's uh, behaviors, uh, heuristics that show that someone's using, looting this box for credentials and going to use that to pivot. The, the opposite end of the spectrum is an indicator of exposure. That is what you get out of like a vulnerability scanner. Um, that is what you get out of like something saying, hey, this is out here. It looks like it might not be um, an up-to-date version. It looks like it might need some patches. It might have this CVE, but I'm not really sure. And that's noise. And a lot of people um, get overwhelmed in that noise of indicators of exposure. Indicators of vulnerability to me are somewhere in between. Uh, it's what a pen tester is looking for. It's what a red teamer is looking for. It's what a real threat actor is looking for if they're trying to hack into a target system. It is a stronger signal than an indicator of exposure, but we're not waiting until it's an indicator of compromise. It's just, it's, um, it's something that you can use to kind of anticipate that like, this is the highest impact spot. This is the weakest Link. This is the this is where I should focus my attention first. And then a lot of the automation that we've built for our team, we've tried to surface these indicators of vulnerability so that we can serve them up to an expert operator on a silver platter and be like, you should break in here. And the first time I saw this this work was with a very large um, company that's like in the food supply industry, and we had a, a already mapped out their attack surface and, and loaded into our our platform, and we already had um, you know basically. They said, you know, break in any way you can from our outside external network, uh, open scope, you, anything that you find that you are confident is ours, go, go for it. And um, we had a kickoff call in the morning. And then by right after lunch, we had a shell and um, we had run our analysis. We found the indicator of uh, vulnerability of a particular Java uh, issue that lets us do deserialization attack and get remote code execution. We popped the shell, we uploaded a web shell, we like started looting the box. Um, and to, to me, like that used to take us like two people, two weeks to find, cause we'd have to like, we had to run our end map scans. We got to run our like this and then we got to like map everything out. Like, um, that would take a long time, but, um, with enough automation, it was like kickoff call, boom, we're in. And then we can uh, skip to the fun part, which was like post exploitation and exploring the impact and looking for other issues. But that was like, so cool. Um, and I think if more companies focused on hunting for indicators of vulnerability, and at least for the highest impact things of the ways that are most likely to get breached, they'd be a lot better off than just waiting until there's an indicator of compromise. One thing I'm starting to hear from CISOs is this drive to consolidate tools. I really can't. I, there's no way I can manage this plethora of vendors and this plethora of tools that I need over here. I'll just go consolidate things. And and what's ended up happening is that they're like eventually ended up in Microsoft's E5 licensing or some sort of Microsoft licensing shop. And that's, I mean, from a risk manage, management and a budgeting perspective, it kind of makes sense. Is that, can you confirm that that's what, that's what you're seeing your clients kind of driving and making decisions based on just simplification of management? Yeah. 
we heard a lot from our customers. We don't want another product. We don't. And, and here was why they, they didn't want another product because that was another thing that they had to maintain usage of. They had to train someone up on, they had to tune and configure and, and, and properly. And guess what ended up happening? Like uh, the person they had, they had to, to budget cuts and they had to like let go of some of their team. And then that person that was running that tool and was trained up on it and was maintaining usage of it every day, they're gone now. Or, or they got a better job after 18 or 24 months. They got uh, uh, poached and recruited. They got paid more because they were really talented and uh, something, something talent shortage. What ended up happening then is that product sits on the shelf and no one uses it. And I can't tell you how many times, even like the head of red team at uh, my friend, she's a head of red team at a company and they have like one of the most elaborate sock build outs of in existence. She's like, oh yeah, we have that product. It just sits on one of the screens in the sock and no one knows what to do with it next or no one has time to do anything with it next. So we're not really getting a whole lot of value out of it. I don't think people understand the total cost of ownership of having someone on your team have to actually use these. So consolidation is a big uh, is the answer and but what happens when what I, happens when you trust your vendor to be your security vendor and the hen is watching the hen house and you can't rely on your cloud provider to ship something out of the box or because you have these configuration issues like where are we heading i think we're heading towards and it's a thesis that that we have um, so i'm biased that, that uh, but i think it is it is a correct thesis that uh building a tech enabled managed service that takes a group of experts and leverages them more than, than you could if it were, you know, a, a traditional model um, and, and enable them with automation, uh, not saying completely automate their job, uh, I'm saying automate the tedious parts, the, the boring parts, the um, parts that would, you know, degrade consistency and efficiency. Um, I think then something that's missing from most managed service providers is transparency. Most People that consume these don't really know what they're doing. So I think that we need to build products as part of that managed service experience where the customer has as much transparency as they want at any given time. Some days they might want more, some days they might want less. Don't overwhelm them with a bunch of noise, but give them the ability to peel back the curtain if they so choose and go deep on what happened over the last week or month or quarter. But maybe you know, give them the panic class that is the roll-up and the summary of just what they need to know in any given day, unless they want to know more, um, which is very hard to build and design. But um, I think that's the direction that we should go. I don't know why we're all wasting our time, because if we listen to big tech today, AI is going to save us all. Uh, Microsoft is building a cyber oh, yeah. defense AI shield for the world. And like every announcement comes out, it's like this revolutionary leapfrog thing that's mm -hmm. really going to save the world. Let's let's level set. Uh, how bullish are you on AI? I'm very bullish. I'm very uh, optimistic and very uh, try to remain pragmatic and, and and meet it where it's at today. Keep the things that are a fantasy for tomorrow still uh, a fantasy for tomorrow until they're not. Until they're the reality of today. Until tomorrow gets here. I think that what I just described yeah it sounded um, very much like AI. Well, yeah, it, it, you can do it without AI. And I mean, we at Bishfox, like our first offensive AI demo was at like. Defcon in 2016, we like made a neural network that could do SQL injection and had no idea what you know, had no strings of what to do for SQL injection commands like a typical tool would. It just knew what the patterns looked like and knew what the end result should be, and it taught itself how to do SQL injection. And um, we were doing that, you know, years ago at this point. Um, we never used it in production because it wasn't it wasn't as it wasn't better than having just one of our professionals use a, a traditional tool uh, that we already had. Right. That there definitely have been. 
uh, leaps and bounds improvements, and especially with generative AI, and especially with being able to prompt an AI that can write its own code from scratch and have agency over how to solve the problem and keep iterating and also not sleeping or eating or taking bio breaks and just churning out on this problem until it gets it, until it gets the desired outcome. And you might be human in the loop, giving it more context uh, to to steer it in the right direction. I have done uh, quite a bit of experimentation with this and I'm very bullish on our ability to automate the tedious tasks amplify the human expertise. And and I think what we'll be doing over the next few years is building a bridge between what the machine does and what the human does, making them uh, better at complementing each other. The the CEO of uh, Grammarly said something that has been ringing in my head. He said, we should stop calling it artificial intelligence and we should start just calling it augmenting intelligence because um, you get into this whole like is conscious stuff if you start talking about artificial intelligence and honestly, who cares? But um, uh, that's, that's not true. I care. But uh, what we're really talking about is augmenting our, our, our ability. So I think that we'll see a lot of investment in that. Is it already making us 10 times smarter and 10 times more efficient? Today, with what we have, the use cases we have today with generative AI bots and co-pilots and some of the things you described. Because that's the thing, right? The idea is it's not gonna, AI is not going to fix everything. It's not going to replace us. It's going to make us smarter and a lot more efficient. What we have today, are we starting to head in that direction? I think so. And I, I, I absolutely think so. And I think especially if people are trained on how to use it better, there's evidence that they do it even better. They get even higher quality output for whatever. Right. The magic becomes want. prompt engineering, right? Like the best prompt engineers become the better users and the be- you get the better outcomes. Sure. Uh, that's part of it. I don't think that's that's all of it. But there is something to like I when I often use it, I, I love to put like the, rather than using like a zero shot prompt, I like to, to use these techniques of like chain of thought or activating like the latent space of the model to um, almost put it in like a consultative mode. And I've been using this algorithm that I've recently learned about um, called a basher loop, where your prompt and your code and the way you interact with the model, you tell it, don't just blurt out the first answer that don't like, that's almost like how, like if I were to ask you something right now, you might just go with your gut and blurt out an answer. Um, and that's kind of what like simple prompting does to, to in these chatbots. But if you, if you tell me to sleep on it tonight. Yeah. If you, if I told you like, slow down, like I don't need your answer right away. This is a, a tough task. Like let's really think about this. And I want you to like brainstorm, um, hypothesize, search and maybe search, go out to the internet and do some searching and some reading, ingest that into your context window and then refine your answer and, and, and print out all the questions you asked yourself along the way. Give me transparency into like why and you answered what you did and how you solved this problem. And then I'll have more confidence that I even trust that right. I got a valid answer. This technique is, is much superior. And there's all kinds of other algorithms that researchers are publishing where they're creating a council of different LLMs that have different expertise and then like an overlord that's like uh, delegating tasks to them, kind of like a middle manager. Right. And then it like um, assigns different tasks and then it aggregates the result and it kind of decides if it, it accomplished uh, the task. Uh, th- this is even uh, showed, uh, these algorithms showed a much better performance on things like crossword puzzles, which are kind of tricky. Like the New York Times crossword puzzle is pretty tricky. Um, and to have a a bot be able to do that, it was able to do it better with using these algorithms. Is it really leapfrog for security? Like what, where does it make the most sense today and where you see it being used and makes the most sense today? I do think it is. I think it's a leap, it's a leapfrog for everything. I, it's, it's like electricity. It's not really, you're um, that bullish. Useful. 
I am, I, I do think it is an inflection point in technology that is on the scale of the internet itself, definitely more so than cloud, maybe even industrial revolution, because like what we just saw in the last year was someone just build the best user interface for an algorithm that already existed that anyone had ever seen. And then we saw fire get lit under all of the major tech companies and, and a fire in the open source community to innovate on this. And we're seeing an immense amount of time and energy go into making this more usable and more capable. And at the end of the day, it's just a tool, but in the same way that like electricity is a tool. Um, and I, I think that in security, every single task is up for up for optimization. What's the most What's the most incredible, amazing security use case you've seen today? I'll just go with like uh, some things that I that gave me chills when I yeah. when I did it. It was it was stuff that it was just tasks that I had done in the past. Like I have this um, technique for like go out to Shodan or go out to all the you know sources of internet scan data. Go get me every instance of this particular technology. Go exploit. Uh, go see if any are vulnerable to this misconfiguration and then download the sensitive information if it is, and then search through that sensitive information for secrets. And that used to take me so much time to do manually. Right. And whenever I got, I used Autogen to the, the, the Microsoft framework for, which is, it's like a combination. Imagine it's like a chatbot meets um, uh, something that can write its own code, can write code from scratch to solve tasks combined with something that reflects on itself and says like, did I achieve the task did, or did the code not work? I will go debug it until it does work. And then I will ask my human operator to give me feedback on if I'm close to achieving what they asked me to do. And I, I basically took that task that used to take me so much time to do manually and got the bot to, to do it. Right. And, and I was like, wow. And, and I'm also like, I'm just so fascinated when I'm using things like Copilot now. I'm like, how much of my life did I spend trying to find that missing curly bracket or that like syntax error in the code? Right. It's impossible to go back to the old days once you've had Copilot. Yeah, I'm, I'm just like tab completing. Um, like I was following along with a YouTube video on how to build some things with AI. And I was able to like, used to have to like pause, go back, pause, go back, rewatch, because I like to type it out with them so that I learn and remember. But it, I was able to like basically auto or Copilot tab complete as this person was talking and tweak a few things and then have a working proof of concept of that code uh, in, in 10 minutes. And like, there's been so many things that even the other day I was in a meeting and we were talking about new visualizations for product. And I just asked ChatGPT to make me, what are some good visualizations for this, this topic? Go make me the code to render those um, in a browser and then just populate them with data, sample data for like application security testing. And it did. And I was like, I went from idea to 10 minutes later having a, a charts and graphs to tell a story of like, what if we did it like this? Like that feels like a superpower to me. Yeah, ChatGPT gives people like real, real, real superpowers. And and the, 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 the rate of innovation and the rate of new features being added to ChatGPT that makes you open your eyes and go wow all over again almost on a daily basis suggests to us that where this is going is not a let's let's look at out five years where we are. Like you have to look out a year to try to like see how because it's moving so fast. So let's look out a year. What kinds of use cases and things you see coming down the pike? Like you mentioned, it's a, this is leapfrog. Where 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 are we going? Where is this? Where is AI and security taking us? It's definitely a superpower. I can't draw 
but I can generate art now. I can't make music, uh, but I can generate music now. I have a lot of ideas, but I, f- I don't feel like I'm a very good writer, but I can you can write get now. a draft. I can write, I can draft, and then I can also like change my tone. I can change my orientation. I can change like things that like would have taken me countless hours to f- manually drudge through. I, I, I've been doing like creative writing exercises. Like, so definitely given me the feeling of having superpowers that I didn't have last year. And um, to, to where we're going next, I've been, I've been going back and rewatching a lot of sci-fi movies. I <laughs> Just try to figure out what 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 yeah. applies, uh, right? Blade Runner, Blade Runner twenty forty nine <laughs> is only a couple of decades away. Maybe they need to move that up to t- Blade Runner twenty twenty nine. It's and then I'm, I'm trying to think like which is our ideal this you know dystopian future or ideal sci-fi future. Actually, I was talking to someone about that, and we decided Firefly is our is our ideal. <laughs> Outcome will just go be space pirates and and and, and we'll all speak Mandarin and in English and um yeah just uh, we'll have to just worry about what planet we're going to go colonize and, and and watch out for space pirates. The obvious question to ra- to wrap it all up is safeguarding the models. There's a lot of discussion around like how do we safeguard these models and attacks against the models. How when you look at it from an adversarial lens, what are realistic realistic attacks today against the model and how worried should we be about this stuff? I think it's I think it's overhyped. I'm. I, I think like these models are trained on data that's on the internet, and that means if you're worried about extracting some information from it, um, that information is already on the internet. And some like, and and I was reflecting on how like the Unabomber taught himself how to make bombs. He didn't have ChatGPT. May not have uh, even had the internet. <laughs> he didn't have the internet. He was living in a barn he, somewhere. Right? He was finding books and manuals <laughs> and then doing experiments and figuring it out. And he was that motivated to do it. And if that's your threat actor, it doesn't matter if they have ChatGPT or not, they're going to figure it out. Um, I do think that a big topic that we're going to have to, to focus on is um, transparency and explainability. Yes. If we're going to use these tools and we're going to rely on them, we need to know how they arrived at the decision that they did. We need to know, um, we need to explain like even they might want to understand things like who funded this model, who built this model, who maintains this model, who, what data went into this model, what biases might it have? There's talk of doing like nutrition style labels on models. Yeah, but who polices like that? We leave the vendors to police that themselves. Are we looking for government to intercede and have uh, regulations be put in place? Is that inevitable? The user and the consumer is going to have to watch what they eat. Uh, right. First and foremost, like I wouldn't, I don't trust the government to to do a good job of this, at least in the initial phase. But they'll have to regulate it. it in some way. I hope that they do it in a way that doesn't stifle innovation in the private market. And then another thing that I think is really important is that I hope that we don't dissuade people that are building these things to bring them to developing countries as soon as possible and help the rest of the world level up and not get left in the yeah. dust. I think that whatever policies the government makes should encourage us to take these technologies to places so that they can start embracing a world where they exist sooner rather than later let's leave it right there that's a great way to end it thank you very much rob appreciate the time thank you for coming on and sharing your work with us yeah thanks for having me